1: from advertising to software as a service to data
2: across all of our programs and clients we've seen a 55 to 65 percent open rate getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than tv advertising
1: Typical life span of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person
2: with the right message and a clear
0: call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the Martech Podcast
1: Welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Today we're going to talk about the future of customer data joining us is max kirby who is the director of digital identity and cloud solutions at Publicis sapient which is a team of technology enablement operations sales and marketing professionals that are leading the shift to cloud and customer data platforming yesterday max and i talked about making the transformation to customer-centric thinking and a lot of that conversation was around consolidating your customer data across its entire life cycle in the cloud And today we're going to continue the conversation by talking about how digital identity is the currency of the information age. All right, here's the second part of my conversation with Max Kirby, Director of Digital Identity and Cloud Solutions at Publicis Sapient. Max, welcome back to the MarTech Podcast. Hey, Ben, good to be with you again. Excited to continue our conversation. Yesterday, we talked about how companies are starting to be able to collect data from their customers across their entire life cycle by moving all of their platform into a single source in the cloud, whether you're going to Amazon, Google, Microsoft, everything from your marketing activities to your customer database, your customer service, you can really get a picture across the entire customer life cycle. And that creates a lot of marketing signals for us marketers. Now, it also highlights the power of understanding who a person is, their digital identity. Talk to me about your thoughts about why digital identity is becoming so much more valuable.
2: Well, to some extent, digital identity never stopped being the most valuable form of data. If you would say that data is the new oil, like so many do... Customer data, digital identity, data about us as people is the light sweet crude. It's the most valuable, ready-to-be-used data. And it really built the large platforms that have become the economic drivers of our economy at this point, the big four the fangs stocks, right? If you were to take those out, and I've, I've actually done the math on this, if you were to take them out, we haven't grown in something like 12 years organically as an economy. I mean, the tech has just been leading the kind of cyclical and secular growth cycles in a way that hasn't been seen before. I mean, maybe you could talk about the manufacturing boom of an industrial revolution. And that's sort of why everyone says we're in the fourth industrial revolution. But the driver of that fourth industrial revolution is, has been, and I think will continue to be data about people organized against those people as individuals, which is what digital identity is.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It used to be if you lose your credit card, that was the worst thing that can happen to you. Now you lose your credit card, you go into your phone and you just turn it off until you get a new number. But if somebody gets your password to Facebook or your bank, like that's the real headache. So, talk to me about the flip side of the coin. The value is in understanding who people are, what their buying behaviors and there's also a backlash from governments and you know obviously the privacy community and the end consumer saying, "Hey, I don't want my data to become a commodity." How do you think about the flip side of it's great for business, it's great for marketers, it's great for the technology companies to have access to this data, might not be great for me or you or the end consumer?
2: So if I were to ask you, Ben, if you, let's say that we're at a restaurant for a second and I'm your waiter. That sounds wonderful. All right. So we're at our lovely restaurant here and I'm the waiter and I ask you, do you have any dietary preferences or allergies at the table tonight? And my question for you isn't, what would your answer be? My question is, would you answer that question? Yes. Of course. And the reason why you would is because you expect to eat something and you know that as a waiter, it's probably a good idea to give me the information I need to make sure that you don't die from an allergy that I serve you in the form of food, right? Seems reasonable. Seems reasonable. So this is why answering questions to businesses at the simplest level is not a bad thing. The problem comes when those answers are shared with people who you never met. Because if the waiter asks you a question, you know whether or not you're comfortable answering that question. But if you were, say, at your veterinarian's office and they asked you the same question, do you have any dietary preferences? You probably would get a different veterinarian. So this creepiness factor, the way that I understand it, at least, is the distance between the relevance of the information that you're asking for And the value that I expect to receive in a restaurant, you're getting food, asking about allergies about food, very close together, not creepy. If your bank were to ask you that same question, very, very creepy, right? Because we just intuitively understand that there's no real purpose for you to have that information, at least not one that we know of.
1: There's also a question of cataloging. Yeah, sure. My waiter can ask me for my food allergies, but the assumption there is that that is a one-to-one conversation. It is not being Catalogued and put into a national registry of dietary allergies. And to me, the question is not are you willing to give the information? It is to whom is the information being given? Like how broadly is this going to be shared? So that's where the real value is. Yeah, sure. I will tell Facebook what my favorite movies are because, ooh, that's a great thing to put on my profile. It makes me more interesting but I don't necessarily think that that's going to be shared with any company for demographic targeting. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi, who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. So where's the boundary here of being able to collect data, being able to monetize data, and also being transparent and open about who's getting access to that data?
2: So we are releasing a study tomorrow, actually, about this very subject. And we partnered with a company called Ipsos, which is one of the big four research firms. And we were interrogating some of these questions. And I'll tell you what we found in answer to your question.
1: I'm terrified.
2: Well, (laughs) So I'll just explain the study real quick for the listeners. We pulled 5,000 people in different markets around the globe. So we did Germany, we did Australia, we did France, we did the UK and then North America, kind of Canada and US. And we pulled all these people and we were asking them what they were comfortable sharing. And we would cycle the data point that we were asking them to share. So their location, their phone number, their name, even biometric data, we had about a hundred data types. And we cycled those against different companies. So it would say your bank or a shoe company or your shampoo company. So we asked them all these questions and created a kind of a map of what people are comfortable sharing with different brands. And the first thing that we noticed is it's not the same for every company. There's certain data sets that you're very comfortable sharing with your bank that you're not comfortable sharing with your shampoo brand. And by the way, you're comfortable sharing almost nothing with your shampoo brand. CPG was like the lowest and banking was the highest. And I think that just reflects the fact that we're so used to giving so much information to folks in financial services to qualify for something or other. The issue, as you put it, and I think you put it really well, is you don't necessarily know who that data is being shared with. And this is why many of the data privacy laws establish a legal concept called privity. And that defines a legal relationship with you as a person. And if you're under GDPR a data subject, You're no longer a data object, which is something that you acquire. And even marketers, we use this language. We say we acquire them as if we're hunting them down in the wild. Look, customers, and we throw our spirit. Now they're a (laughs) data subject. And a subject, you have to treat subjectively, which is to that person's consent, which I almost went into the legal world, so I'll just nerd out for you for a second. But the Latin root of consent means to feel together. And what that means is you have to try to empathize with the person on the other end of the line. So as you put it, the weird part about data right now is that in the analog world, we had memories that we would forget and healthy people would forget those memories. But computers don't forget. They will remember what your dietary preferences are. They will give that to other parties and it may travel around into other people who you didn't mean to give it to. So in a way, The digital identity, the information about you, your digital identity, the only way that we can solve this equation is if you know the identity of the people on the other end of the phone line. What we need is caller ID to fix this.
1: I think there's another level of complexity here too, which is there is first party data. Sure, I'm going and I'm hunting and tracking down my customers. And you mentioned the notion of like spearing them. There's also just acquiring third party data. And that to me is the bigger problem of, I can go and I can collect first party data and I can get consent from my consumers, but I could also just go into a data reseller and just buy that data without actually having to get their consent because they've given consent somewhere else. To
2: someone else and the collectors, they've mentioned third parties in their upfront disclaimers. And as we were also able to kind of prove in this study, nobody is actually reading those disclaimers. No one's going through the end user licensing agreement or the terms and conditions or et cetera. And so what you're identifying is we are set on this path and we're going to run into a problem very soon, which is it's not just consent, it's informed consent. And the same thing that happened in the medical world, when informed consent started rolling out before that, your doctor didn't necessarily have to tell you all of the implications of the choice of a surgery or et cetera. That's because they assumed that nobody had the ability to understand medicine unless, of course, you've gone to medical school. Data is very similar. People don't necessarily understand data and the difference between data and information, which are two different things, let alone you know digital nativity or an understanding. Of digital. And so I think we're kind of locked towards this path from a legal perspective because I don't think you can claim that people are consenting to things that they understand when they consent to them. And if you can't do that, then there's precedent in the law to say that's not actually really consent.
1: Yeah, it puts us at an interesting point where we have access to this wealth of data. It's all being legally gathered. You can buy it from third parties. People are giving consent. It's not necessarily active consent, but it does help business results. And so there is on some level a practice of marketing that obviously the end consumer isn't a big fan of. And it becomes more of an ethical question than it becomes a marketing operations question of how much data should you be collecting, where should you be getting your data from, and how should you be using it? So we're going to continue this conversation tomorrow and talk about the future of customer data. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Max Kirby, Director of Digital Identity and Cloud Solutions at Publicis Sapient for joining us. In the third part of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Max and I are going to wrap up our conversation by talking about the future as it relates to customer data. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Max, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter. His company's handle is Publicis Sapient, P-U-B-L-I-C-I-S-S-A-P-I-E-N-T, or you can visit his company's website, which is PublicisSapient.com.